If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 together. We have reached the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, which means Christmas is just around the corner. It is here, guys. Ready or not. In our study this Advent season, we've been looking at the various names that were ascribed to the baby born in Bethlehem of Mary. And this week, we turn our attention to the last name we're going to look at, and we saved the greatest for last. Today, we're going to look at the name that is above every other name. The name that has been bestowed on Jesus by God the Father And it is a name that in time, every being in the universe will confess, either willingly or unwillingly. They will confess uh, when they hear the name Jesus. That's that's, Jesus is not the name above all names. Don't throw stones yet. Uh, I'll show you that in a moment. Uh, But when, uh, when we hear the name Jesus we will be compelled to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord is the great name that is above every other name. But before we look at it, I want to give you some context. The Apostle Paul is writing this second chapter in Philippians specifically to exhort the church to unity. He wants them to have the same mind, to have the same love. He wants the church to be one. Well, how does that happen? I mean, I want you to think about this. How do we as believers find unity? How do we come to the same mind and the same love? Is there a secret to church unity? That secret is... Humility. It's humility. When believers are humble, there radiates from them something that is Christ-like. Humility is what Paul is exhorting these Philippians to. It remains the same for us today. If we want to pursue unity in the church, we need to pursue humility. It will be the same for Christians throughout the ages. So this is what Paul is calling them to, to humility. And he says, I'm going to give you an example to follow Christ Jesus. Let your mind be the mind of Christ. Have the same mindset that Jesus had. Think as he thought. He did not do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, in humility, he counted others more significant than himself. And then Paul goes on to dramatically display the humility of Christ. He says that even though he was in the form of God and he was equal to God the Father, he did not view that equality with God as something to be grasped, as something that he could use for his own advantage but he gave up those rights and privileges. And he left the highest position in the universe to come to earth and become fully human 
and become a nobody. And not only that, he made himself a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, I think as Christians in our culture, it's easy for us to forget how offensive the cross was in the first century. I'll use this example. There are a list of four-letter words we all know that we've been exposed to in our society, and those words are obscene. And if I was to speak one right now from behind the pulpit, you would be stunned, offended, because I would have spoken in obscenity. Your reaction to that would be very similar to the reaction in the first century when Peter and John and Paul mentioned the cross. The cross was disgusting. It was revolting. It was not a topic of polite conversation. The cross in and of itself was a profanity. It was a cuss word. And yet Jesus Christ went to the cross and died there. Sinclair Ferguson gave this quote in a sermon on this text. He said that Jesus came from heaven's highest glory to the Roman Empire's deepest obscenity. And he did so for my salvation. Such is the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation. But that's not where our Lord stayed. Some of you might be familiar with a parabola. I'm not going to try to describe it because I'm no mathematician. I will mess something up. But it's basically this very dramatic U-shape where it starts high and comes down low and then goes right back up. The parabola is a picture that demonstrates what Paul shows us here. That the Lord Jesus was at the highest position in the universe. And he came down to the deepest obscenity of the Roman Empire, but because of his perfect obedience, because he accomplished the will of the Father, his plan of salvation, and dying for the sins of the church, the Father gives his approval and vindicates the Son and raises him and exalts him and gives him all authority and seats him on the throne of heaven at his right hand where he will reign forever and ever and ever. That is the, that's the parabola of Scripture Paul describes. This astounding picture of uh, the life of Christ in eternity past to eternity future with this wonderful work of salvation in the middle. And today we're looking at the fact that when he... It returns to this place of authority and is high and lifted up. God the Father gives to him, bestows to him a name that is above every other name. I want you to think about, uh, we all have names when we hear them that produce some type of impulse within us. Maybe there's a name you hear, and the immediate impulse is to smile. 
because there's some fond memory attached to that name. Maybe there's another name that could be mentioned and the impulse that immediately is drawn out of you is, is maybe one of pain or anger. Maybe there's another name that could be mentioned that might create the impulse of disappointment or frustration. You see what I'm saying? There are different names that will produce an impulse within us. Well, this name that we're going to look at today, the name above all names, is the result of an impulse. The name Jesus Christ will be said, and the impulse that will be created, whether you like it or not, is He is Lord. Like I said earlier, either willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. R.C. Sproul talks about this. I've I've got a quote from him. He says that in this text... uh, God has highly exalted Jesus to such a degree that at the name of Jesus, when you hear the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his humiliation, because of his perfect obedience in the role of a slave, God moves heaven and earth to exalt the Son and to give him a name that is above every other name, So that when you hear the name Jesus, your impulse should be to fall to your knees and confess that He is Lord. Is that your impulse? When you hear the name Jesus, is your impulse to bend the knee? Bend the knee metaphorically, bend the knee physically. And to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this name that we are compelled to call Jesus Christ. But before we do, let's pray and read our text. Father God, would you speak to your people through your servant and through your word. Father, I am not worthy of the position to which I've been called. But would you speak all the same for your glory and for the good of your people? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read our text beginning in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So there are a lot of names ascribed to the Savior. We've looked at Emmanuel, Jesus, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there are other names as well. Uh, The Word, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God, the Root of David, the Good Shepherd, the Branch, the Morning Star, the Door, the Bread of Life, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. There are so many. But what we just read is that there is one name that is above the rest. We aren't told in Scripture of any other name that every tongue will be forced to acknowledge. Except this one. There is something unique about this name we see. This name that is above every name. We need to ask, just begin, where does the weight of this name come from? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That that word Lord may not jump out at you as all that impressive. Lord is commonly used and, I mean, without any context, you might easily think that the fourfold name in Isaiah 9 is more dramatic and more weighty than just Jesus Christ is Lord. Where does the weight come from? Well, the easiest thing to say first is that it comes, the weight comes from the fact that this is God's name. This is the name of the covenant God of Israel. This is the same name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. When God appears to Moses in the Sinai wilderness and says, Go and tell Pharaoh, go and tell my people that I am has sent you. That name, I am, in the Hebrew is the name Yahweh. And that is the personal name of the Creator. Yahweh. Go tell them that Yahweh has sent you. Now, Jews would not use this name in fear of breaking the third commandment and taking the Lord's name in vain. They chose rather to not use it. And so whenever they would spell out His name, They would write consonants and leave out the vowels. So you can look and see the Hebrew consonants are written out and the vowels that are above it are are left out. So you simply see Y-H-W-H. And that was a reminder to not say the name. And instead of using this name, they would uh, use another name that you've probably heard before, Adonai, which means Lord so you have the Jews writing in Hebrew the, the, the covenant personal name of God and out of uh, the fear of the Lord, they're not using the name Yahweh, so they use Adonai instead. Well, what happens when the Greeks translate Old Testament Hebrew into Greek? 
How did they deal with his personal name? Well, they used the word Kyrios, which means Lord. You'll see the more weight behind this in a moment. But what I want you to see first and foremost is that in verse 11, the Apostle Paul is saying, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Kyrios. He is Yahweh. He's not a magician or a trickster. He's not a great moral teacher. He's not an example of the power of nonviolent resistance. He's not a guru or a sage. He is Kyrios, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the only one true God. And if you understand that Paul here is mentioning the personal name of God, you can understand why this name will outweigh every other one. I mean, God himself says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name. And if that's his name and it doesn't belong to anyone else, we can see why it's the name that's above every name. Now, some will look at this text, uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and they'll say that Lord is not the name mentioned here that's above every other name. The name that is above every other name is Jesus That's what some would argue, and I would argue that that is not the case. Lord is the name in question here, and I'll just briefly tell you why. First, what we've already said is that there's only one God, and so his personal name is going to be above every other name. And Kyrios is the New Testament representation of Yahweh. Second, when you look at the flow of verses 9 through 11, isn't it clear that there's this movement towards a universe-wide confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can see God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that, where is all this going? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's being confessed here. This name isn't saying uh, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Jesus. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the covenant God of Israel. There's also a parallel here that had to be in the Apostle Paul's mind from Isaiah 45 in Isaiah 45, 23, the Lord says, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And right before that he says, I am, the God, I am God, there is no other. So there's this title that is bestowed on Jesus, this title of Lord, Curios. Now the Romans understood the weight of this title as well. You know, you can, I thought of, British nobility, and you had lots of lords and ladies. Um, wasn't wasn't the case in Rome? In Rome, there was a marker of divinity. The Romans would say, "Curios Caesar," which meant Caesar is Lord. There was this belief that Caesar was a god. You know, in the same way that Kim Jong Un 
believes himself to be a god and claims to be a god and also claims to have played a perfect round of golf hitting 18 hole-in-ones in a row. The Romans also believed that their supreme leader was not merely human but was a god. And so they, the Roman citizens, they would go to their temples and they would offer worship to the state and they would bow the knee before the statue of Caesar, and they would confess, Curios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord. And the church would respond with probably the most common confession in the early church in the first three centuries. They would say, no, Jesus is Lord. One of my closest friends in seminary, he worked for a church in Madison, and he would routinely drive the church fan. Um, They didn't want it just sitting in the parking lot, unused. It's not good to have an engine just sit. You don't want gas to get old. You've got to keep the gas moving. So he would drive this van to class. He'd drive it around town, and we lovingly nicknamed it the Creeper Van, it was this old two-tone blue Ford Econoline 12-passenger van, and we would load up in it on campus and drive to Clinton and get Chick-fil-A. But on the front bumper of this van, there was this tag. And the tag had praying hands painted. And right beside it, it said, Jesus is Lord. That's where my mind goes when I hear these words. To that old van with the bumper sticker slogan, Jesus is Lord. You know, it really is a shame that's where my mind goes. That when I hear the words Jesus is Lord, I I associate it with a bumper sticker slogan. Something you might see on a billboard or something maybe someone has spray painted on an overpass. That's where my mind goes. But I miss the weight behind these words in the early church. When the early church would say Jesus is Lord, that meant that Caesar wasn't. In their minds were texts like Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Caesar is not God. He is a prideful fool who will die like all of the other Caesars before him. But the grave could not hold Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead and he spent 40 days teaching and encouraging and strengthening his fledgling church. And then he ascends to heaven and returns to the glories of heaven to reign and rule at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord. This was way more than just a bumper sticker slogan. There were many brothers and sisters in Christ who were martyred because they held those three words. They believed that confession that Jesus is Lord. Many of them were killed, but as the Apostle Paul wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The worst that Caesar could do was to send these Christians into the direct presence of the real, true Lord who loved them so much he left heaven 
to go to the cross for them. I would ask you, I, I would be surprised if there was anyone in this room who would not verbally assent to, yes, Jesus is Lord. Sure, that's true. But I would ask, what would it look like in your life for these three words to move from a bumper sticker slogan to something that could really cost you? Now, I know I'm grateful. uh, I know and I'm grateful for the fact we don't live in a place like Iran. We don't live in a place like uh, communist China. As one of you said in our prayers, I'm so grateful for the fact that we can have police officers sitting in the back and we are glad to see them and we are not afraid when they show up. We live in a country where the government is not forcing the gun at us saying, you will say Kyrios Kaiser. But all the same, these three words should cost you something. I don't think you can live at peace in the same world that crucified your master. He says, if they hated me, they will hate you also. So how are these three words costing you something? Or are they simply just a slogan? You know, the next thing we need to see mentioned in verse 10 is this picture of every knee Bowing in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a universal confession. Everyone is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, some will mistakenly take this as a teaching of universal salvation, meaning that everyone's going to be saved and hell doesn't exist, and that on the final day, everyone is going to have smiles on their faces and say, Jesus is Lord. They'd be mistaken. There will be some who will make this confession with great joy. And those are the redeemed sinners, forgiven, who make up the body of Christ. It will be a joyful thing for every believer throughout the ages. It'll be more joyous for me than when I said I do at my wedding to say these words, Jesus is Lord. But it's not going to be that way for everyone. It's not going to be joyful for everyone. Some will grit their teeth and they will hate to admit it, but they will no longer be able to deny that reality is reality and truth is truth and that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And you can look at a psalm like Psalm 110, which talks about the Messiah, the one uh, who King David called Lord. And he one day will sit at the right hand of God and all his enemies will be made a footstool. Everyone's going to confess. Everyone will confess in heaven. You've got the angelic host. We read a lot about the angelic host during this time of the year at Christmas. We read of uh, their appearance to the shepherds, bringing good news of great joy. 
we can turn to Revelation 4 and 5 and see the, the songs of praise that they're singing. And it's an amazing picture of what is already happening in heaven and what's coming. You know, I, I dearly love congregational singing. I, I love singing hymns where our voices swell together and carry one another in, in praise uh, to God. The most amazing experience of this I've ever had, there's a conference that happens every other year. It's called Together for the Gospel, and I usually will go to it. And there's, uh, you're in a basketball arena, the, uh, the KFC Yum Center in downtown Louisville. It's where the Cardinals play. There'll be 15,000 pastors in that arena singing together. And I'm telling you, you cannot hear yourself singing. Just the swelling of voices around you. But imagine what would happen if you introduced millions of angels into that praise. I love this quote from James Montgomery Boyce's commentary. He says, It is glorious to know that in the day when the redeemed stand before God the Father, our feeble voices will be swelled by the voices of millions of angels who have seen the drama of salvation unfold over the ages and sing out of their great wonder and vast experience. We'll be joined by those voices in heaven. What about the voices on the earth? My view is that these are men and women, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are forgiven sinners all of the saints throughout the ages, and together we will bend the knee and confess with great joy that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think we can get down at times. We can be like Elijah in the wilderness, terrified that he's going to die. I'm the only one left. Everyone else has bent the knee to a false god. And what does God tell Elijah? There are 7,000 you do not know of who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We need to remember that because our vision is short-sighted and we can despair Our knowledge is limited. Like Elijah, we're the only one. And we forget that Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's working in ways we do not know, in places we do not know. Just for example, currently there are more Presbyterians in Brazil than there are in the United States. He's gathering his people who will one day bend the knee to him and cry in joyous praise that he is Lord and Redeemer. You've got those in heaven, those on the earth, and then those under the earth. This would include our enemy, Satan, his servants, his demons, and those who have rejected Christ and are now confined to the place of torment. And it will bring them no joy, And it will be a bitter taste in their mouth. And still, they will have no alternative but to acknowledge that Jesus 
Christ is who he said he is. Not who they say he is. They will have to acknowledge it. Satan will have to acknowledge it. And every knee will bow and confess that to you rightly belongs the name that is above every other name. Now we're obviously still waiting on this day. This day of his second coming. You know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Advent means coming. It means arrival. And we would be wrong to think that Advent is only about his first coming and to never direct our attention to the second Advent. The incarnation is so important, but so is the future day of his appearing. It's the hope and longing of the believer. There are those in the early church who would give that confession, Jesus is Lord, but there's also a prayer that they would give as well. And it was a prayer in Aramaic. You can find it at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. It's a word you've probably heard before, Maranatha, which means... Our Lord, come. That's what we are longing for. And yes, we look back at his first coming, his unthinkable humility, his leaving the highest of heavens to experience utter humiliation, that he came to die for our sins, and we should look back at that. But God's plan is not over. Redemptive history marches on, and we are caught up in it, and we like the Apostle Paul, like the early church, also long for the second advent when we will experience those words that were written in joy to the world. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's our longing. Maranatha, our Lord, come. In this statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a brief, short little version of the gospel, don't we? We have Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins, who is the Christ, the appointed one of God, the Messiah, the promised one sent, and he is Lord, the God of all. The name above every name. My question to end with. Is he your Lord? You can see the words of doubting Thomas at the end of John's gospel. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's not simply enough to know that he is the Lord. James tells us even the demons know who he is. They believe and shudder. So it's not do we know that he is the Lord, but is he our Lord? Do you know what this produces? It produces what Paul talked about in the first four verses. Humility. Our mind will be more and more conformed to the mind of Christ as the Holy Spirit reproduces his mind within us. And just as the Lord Jesus counted us more important than himself, we are to count others more important than ourselves. 
We're to manifest that humility, that Christ-likeness. And it will be used by our God, not only to glorify his name, but to unify his church and to bring more and more in to join the feast. More and more who will on that last day with joy cry, Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may it be so. May it be so. May we be those who are brought to a knowledge of our need in the Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would work a a miracle within us, changing our heart, renewing our mind, so that with joy we might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we would have a longing for his return to make all things new, to make the right wrong, to bring light where there is darkness, to make all things new. Father, work this within us and hold us close. In Jesus' name, amen.